I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And what does it mean to have luck? Good luck or bad? Is luck something that only happens selectively at certain times? Or is our entire existence, our every living moment, a kind of luck that we've had zero control over? And if that's true, what does it mean for our society, our educational system, our criminal justice system, how we treat and empathize with each other? What does it mean for our world if all of us are exactly where we are due only to pure chance? Our guest this week grapples with the philosophical and moral implications of that hypothesis. Aaron Rabinowitz is a PhD student in the Rutgers LCID program with a focus in moral education. He teaches as a part-time lecturer in the Rutgers philosophy department and assists with community organizing in secular and skeptic communities. He is the host of two educational philosophy podcasts, Embrace the Void and Philosophers in Space. Beyond moral education, his interests include moral luck, AI ethics, and the nature of consciousness. Aaron, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Pleasure is all mine. Now, for listeners who may be unfamiliar with you and your podcasts, what would you say differentiates Embrace the Void and Philosophers in Space, as the focus of both is largely the same umbrella topic of philosophy? Yeah, so they're very different in sort of style and kind of level of some some extent. So I sort of think of like philosophers in space as being the hundred level class that I would teach if there were like no rules about what kind of content I had to cover in my hundred level class. And I do actually teach a fair bit of the stuff we've covered on that show in like my AI ethics courses, for example. But it's very much like take a fun piece of science fiction and take a philosophical topic and really try to make both of them sort of very accessible. So, I mean, generally speaking, accessibility is something that I care a lot because I think philosophy tends to be fairly inaccessible, but I do think we are in sort of a growth period of people's interest in philosophical topics. I think people arguing constantly on the internet has made them more interested in these sorts of things. And I think there's a desire for material that like doesn't talk down to people but makes it fun so things like crash course philosophies on youtube for example whereas embrace the void is more like a 200 level course where it's largely almost entirely interviews where i talk to all sorts of various people from philosophy twitter and all sorts of other places when i can get a hold of them and we have You know, I would say it's a mix of conversations about philosophy and conversations about culture war and what the mix is depends on the current situation. Though I do think a lot of the best philosophy that's being done right now is philosophy that intersects with the like deep philosophical questions that are driving, I think, the culture or at least the things that people claim are driving their interest in the culture war, whether or not those are actually the things they care about. Yeah. I mean, I can even sometimes get intimidated by philosophy myself because a lot of it can seem rather heady, at least for me. Mm -hmm. But it's an important topic, as you mentioned, because it is the way that we can explain to ourselves and to each other why we do the things that we do, why we say the things that we say. To quote someone who I don't believe you are a particularly big fan of, but I do think that this quote is relevant. We are all mouthpieces for dead philosophers which was Jordan Peterson, interestingly mm. enough. Some of us are mouthpieces for living philosophers. So. <laughs> that's true. That's, all, that, that's actually true. But yeah, I mean, I think that that sentence by itself is rather true. Whether they're living or dead, we oftentimes are speaking to each other and about topics in ways that 
we don't even understand the philosophical underpinnings of the things that we're saying, even though we are enacting Mm -hmm. those like philosophical constructs, as it were. So that's why I find Embrace the Void so interesting. I'm a little less personally familiar with your other podcasts, but I also like that with Embrace the Void, I mean, you do kind of tend to even get into more general interest topics as well. Some of your recent interviews, like with Angel Eduardo and whatnot, although it's slightly philosophical in framing, it's more conversations with other people about the problems that are kind of affecting us today. I do very much enjoy talking to people who I think disagree with me and see the world fairly differently on a range of cultural, social, philosophical issues. And I've had a lot of these good conversations recently. And part of my goal there is honestly just to try to genuinely show that you can de-escalate these conversations some i see so often online amidst the like cancel culture stuff this fear like people will just tell me you literally can't say x or you will be canceled and i don't know how to explain (laughs) to them that i have said x on my podcast that people listen to and like i don't get canceled for it i'm like a white guy so like i'm not immune in any magical way from criticism It's really valuable, I think, to be actually having those conversations because I feel that a lot of folks who sort of bemoan the current state of discourse are also the folks who are unwilling to actually engage in those conversations. And so I think it's valuable to create an alternative space where that can actually happen. And that was sort of, I think, part of the reason that we ended up having this chat was because I think you and I probably, while we agree on some things, I think disagree on other things, but I think are amidst a group of people who want to try to reopen lines of communication, I think, a little bit. Let me just add one more thing on there. Whenever I talk about this kind of like bridge building stuff that I do think is really valuable, I do want to be cognizant of, you know, I think there can be a way that it can be done, which is self-serving and performative. And it doesn't involve really challenging the people on the other side of the conversation. But to me, the value of building up this sort of social capital with other people is that you can then spend it essentially not in a like transactional kind of way, but in a sense of like, you've invested in the person they've invested in you. And then you can say, look, I think maybe you should seriously reconsider your views on X. And I think there is some amount of evidence that that particular model can nudge people's perspectives to some extent. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think that the way that you approach it on Embrace the Void is like very instructive. And I think that you kind of practice what you preach there. I think you had a guest on by the name of Stephen Douse, if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. Mm-hmm. Just trying to remember off the top of my head there. But don't worry, I can pronounce any names correctly. But your conversation with him, I thought was rather good in that regard, in that it was amicable. You two were looking for points of agreement, but you also didn't shy away from places where you disagreed. Mm-hmm. I think that with, and I don't want to talk about my own podcast on my own podcast for too long, but where I would say this show diverges from Embrace the Void, aside from the fact that it will never approach a level 200 philosophy course, mm-hmm. is what I try to do with most guests is find one area of agreement, even if I might have several. Right now, I have guests Mm -hmm. that I'm more ideological aligned with and some that I'm less so. But what I try and focus on is like, okay, what is one thing that we agree on? And let's talk about that. That kind of approach, I think, can be supplemental to your approach in that I think that Mm -hmm. there need to be conversations where people hash out disagreements in ways that are, if not always polite, at least from a place of, hey, we're trying to solve a real issue here. And Another way is to highlight areas where people do agree 
Because I think, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, and then we can get into moral luck, because I actually think moral luck kind of ties into this topic almost directly. Mm -hmm. I think in our current discourse, I imagine you've probably felt this a little bit too, is we put ourselves into these tribes, these factions where, you know, you're either left or right or whatever the labels might be. And the act of putting yourself into that bucket can make it seem like a totality of opinion. To phrase that a different way, when we look at voting maps after an election, Mm -hmm. you know, it'll say like, okay, this state went red, this state went blue, this district went blue, this district went red. And that creates a false impression. Because when you just label a Congress district red or blue, even if that's technically who won that district, what it erases is the fact that that district might be 51% red and 49% blue, et cetera, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I think people are a lot like that too. And I think in our current discourse, right, quote unquote, capital D discourse, we can forget that people contain multitudes of opinions. And that if someone might identify on the left, doesn't mean that they have no areas of agreement with someone on the right and vice versa. And what I noticed over the course of the last several years, and it's always been there, but it feels to have gotten especially acerbic as of late, perhaps because of social media and other causes, is we can lose sight of that, that even if you and I might disagree on certain things. I know we can find areas of agreement. I know we'll find areas of agreement in this very topic. As I was researching it, I was like, yeah, I agree with a lot of this. And I feel like that can get lost. And so if I was going to try and differentiate, let's say, the goal of my podcast from yours, let's say, or my worldview on this from yours, it would be, I do agree with your stance that disagreement can lead to better discourse. I also try and think, okay, where can we find areas of agreement so we don't lose sight of the fact that we're not all one thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think these are two sides of sort of the social mechanism, I think, right? That this is how we build relationships and as social creatures influence other people. And I think that's not actually a bad thing. I think it's quite good that we have this ability to influence each other in these kinds of ways. So like to the point, the funny thing is whenever we're talking about these kinds of general points about discourse... I always, and it's not like a yes ending or or like a bullsiderism kind of thing, but I always want to say, and maybe maybe this is similar to what you're saying, that I think both sides have some points, and those points are genuine and intention. And so, like, I'm in favor of trying to agree with people. And when I have those conversations with people and embrace the void, usually I will move from points of agreement to points of disagreement. And, like, genuinely, right? Not as a kind of manipulative mechanism, but... I feel like I see a fair bit of people who will say, I'm having agreement with this particular person over here who also has, I think, some really bad views. And I will one day disagree with them about those views as well. But for now, we're going to come together and both attack our mutual enemies or something like that. And there, I think the kind of finding points of agreement can permanently push to the future, having those hard disagreements that I think are necessary for maintenance within the community. And so I think there has to be sort of both of these things happening in tandem all the time, really. Yeah, so I guess that's where I end up on it. I think it's valuable. I think we agree on a lot of things, probably. And we could run through lists of social projects that we're both in favor of or something like that. But it is probably also important that we spend some time on do we disagree fundamentally about limiting free speech at some point? Right? Do we disagree fundamentally about radical redistributions of wealth or social justice programs, stuff like that? Yeah, I totally agree. And without getting too online, I know kind of exactly the alliances you're speaking of and why those can be especially dangerous. 
But let's kind of transition to the concept of moral luck, because I actually think it squarely applies here, right? Because to kind of intro us, right? Moral luck kind of led you to the beliefs that you have. They led you to your own political ideology as it did mine. Mm-hmm. There is another role of the cosmic dice in which I have a completely different set of views. And so do you. I mean, as noted in your intro, one of your main topics of interest is moral luck. And to quote the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, and I believe that that is the first time in my life that I've ever said that string of words in that order, mm. quote, Moral luck occurs when an agent can be correctly treated as an object of moral judgment, despite the fact that a significant aspect of what she is assessed for depends on factors beyond her control, end quote. So I'm only slightly less new to this concept than I imagine many of our listeners are. So Mm -hmm. as someone who is deeply familiar with this and has spoken at length on it several times, how would you expand on this definition of moral luck if you agree with it? Mm -hmm. And why is it a topic of fascination to you? Right. Okay. So first of all, there's a one word in there that I might potentially suggest leaving out that I think is debate. Like people could mean different things, obviously, by the term moral luck. But when I talk about it, I don't mean someone is correctly identified as being worthy of moral judgment. As we'll see when we talk about this view, the idea that anyone can correctly be assessed as worthy of moral judgment really does come into doubt, I think, in serious ways if you take the problem of moral luck seriously. So I would say moral luck situations are situations where an individual just is held morally accountable, even though what they did is predominantly, largely, or in my view, entirely the result of factors beyond their control. Okay, so how do I sort of motivate a claim like this? And this is very much similar to a rejection of the kind of view of free will that I think probably the majority of people hold, which is that they believe that most people these days will acknowledge some amount of things are beyond your control, besides people who believe in the secret or the wish or something like that, right? Most people don't think that they have radical control over every part of the universe. But most people do think that they have some amount of control over an internal part of themselves that is influenced by external factors, but is also independent of them enough in some radical kind of way that that little Atman person thingy at the controls on the inside of them could, in theory, be held responsible if they cause you to do some sort of harm. Okay, so basically, the way this problem plays out is there is a very basic intuitive truth, I would say, about moral responsibility, which is that you can only hold somebody morally responsible for things that are under their control, right? You know, if I took over your body and went on a killing spree, nobody would hold you morally responsible for what I had done during that period or should hold you morally responsible for what I'd done during that period, right? But then the problem is when you start to really dive into psychology and a variety of other fields of study of human beings and the nature of consciousness and all these sorts of things, I think it becomes pretty impossible to believe that there is a space of control inside of you that is radically independent enough from all of the other forces in the world that we can assign to it some sort of special moral responsibility. So Thomas Nagel, the living philosopher who I am a mouthpiece for, wrote a chapter in a book called Moral Luck where he just says, you know, that little space of control, when you really think about it, shrinks and shrinks and shrinks down to a non-existent point, right? So it just goes away. I ultimately at this point believe philosophically that two claims I think are just 
true and i'm fairly convinced by them which is that free will is not real and moral truths are like i'm a moral realist in this kind of way maybe we can talk about what that means as well it's a weird thing to hold those two things in tandem but i do think they are compatible but what follows from the claim that there is no free will and that we are all the result of forces beyond our control all the way down that's where things can get really, really messy. And I wish I had better answers. So I'm sure as we dive into this, we will hit a point where I will say there are not great answers to these questions. And we're still mucking about trying to address it, I think. Yeah, we can definitely get to a lot of that. And in regards to morality or moral truths being real, but free will not being real, I I have a whole section towards Mm -hmm. the back end, but I want to make sure that we don't jump in too deep Mm -hmm. before Mm -hmm. we really explore and allow you to kind of elucidate the greater concepts around moral luck. But kind of just to jump in real quick, because I think the role that I've decided I should play here as someone who is, I guess, newer to philosophy is try and play the audience surrogate, right? Mm -hmm. If I think of a question or if I've written down a question that I think like the average person might come across as they're listening, that's what I'm going to try and do. So when you say that individuals are held morally accountable, even though what they did is entirely a result of factors beyond their control, Mm -hmm. can someone be held responsible for anything? under that umbrella can a person be held responsible for any bad or good acts they ever do ultimately no i think is the correct answer right if what you mean is the kind of robust responsibility that allows someone to be a correct object of praise or blame in a sense that just goes beyond the functionality of doing those things for reinforcing their behavior I just think the answer is no. I can give some examples for this, right? I think probably not talking about the politics of this, but I think generally speaking, there's a little bit more agreement or sympathy to this view from folks on what we can call the political left versus the political right. But I think both sides, all worlds, I think all cultures have some awareness of the problem of moral luck in this kind of way. So in the like, lefty woke sphere, right, you're going to hear most often, I think luck talked about in terms of privilege, right, where various individuals like myself have just all sorts of what Nagel would call constitutive and circumstantial luck, which is to say, the features that make up who I am as a person, including the phenotypes that I carry around with me, combined with the like socioeconomic and familial and whatever other kinds of factors went into my particularly fairly privileged upbringing, right? Those are the things that make it so that I am lucky enough to get to talk about philosophy for a living, right? Like I didn't deserve to get to talk about philosophy for a living. I've been very, very lucky to get to do so. And so I think, you know, you can find all sorts of versions of those, both good and bad, right? I think it's fair to talk about the bad luck that people experience, especially like You know, if you look at the discourse on poverty, right, the moral judgment that we continue as a Protestant work ethic society to attach to poverty is silly and like horrifying. It leads to, I think, both people on the left and the right being cruel towards poorer individuals because they are viewed as sort of morally inadequate for having achieved that position. Now, I think there's differences about the way that different people approach that. These are just some of the kinds of examples. You know, and I like to say on the, especially on the religious right side, you have these ideas about things like there, but for the grace of God go I. And I think, you know, if you're not talking like 
strict Calvinists, right, who think that some people just go to hell and other people just go to heaven. I think there are a lot of religious traditions on the right that believe that salvation is eventually open to everyone, the kind of universal salvationist views. And I think those views arise out of a recognition that there's just even the worst Hitler in the world doesn't deserve infinite suffering because of that. And that redemption has to be open to all of them for the possibility of just because you don't choose where you're born into, you don't choose if you happen to be born into 1920s Germany and have the series of events that you would have that would bring about you being an SS officer or something like that. You know, one of the really humbling aspects of, I think, taking seriously the idea that everything about, like you were saying earlier, your beliefs, everything about you is the result of luck, is that you can't say to yourself, if I had been born in Nazi Germany, I would have been one of the good guys who fought back, right? You have to say to yourself, there's a good likelihood that if I'd been born there, I would have ended up complicit, right? Because the vast majority of people ended up complicit and the vast majority of them weren't psychopaths or sociopaths. The reasonable inferences they just had really bad circumstantial and constitutive luck, and we could have just as easily been them. That's a great example. And I think just as a framework for people to understand, Nagel breaks down moral luck into four types. Mm-hmm. Resultant moral luck, otherwise known as consequential moral luck, which you relayed. And I think the kind of famous example he uses in his essay is there are two different individuals who run a red light on different days. Mm-hmm. On one day, there's a child crossing the crosswalk. On another day, there is not a child there. And so just because of consequential or resultant moral luck, two people committed the same exact action. They ran a red light and only one of them hit the child. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that one person was particularly more evil or worse somehow. They just happened to tragically luck into a horrific situation, even though they both did the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. There's circumstantial moral luck, which you just referenced with something like Nazi Germany, which I actually want to touch on in just a second. There's constitutive moral luck, which is basically the concerns that the personal character of an individual, the kind of person you are, I think to quote Nagel directly, the kind of person you are where this is not just a question of what you deliberately do, but of your inclinations, capacities, and temperament. This could be everything from your upbringing to education, genes, other uncontrollable influences. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, and it's kind of a fourth one, kind of like a third plus, yeah. a fourth category, which is causal moral luck, which mostly feels like a way for Nagel to kind of talk about the idea of free will. Mm-hmm. But it's basically that actions are determined by external events. And so the consequences that arise from those events are largely beyond a person's control because we are constricted in our choice since we can never see or make all choices available to us. Basically, if I choose to go to a party, one of two parties on the, in a given night, And one of the parties I go to happens to have some horrific event that I either accidentally take place in or I'm a victim of. Mm -hmm. I didn't have Mm -hmm. 10,000 parties to go to. I only really had those two. And so even though, quote unquote, free will might exist within the spectrum of those two choices I made, it's never truly free because I only have a limited set of options that are presented to me by reality. Do I have that correct? It's a little bit worse even than that, right? So the reality would be you only have the one party that you go to. Uh. I think what he's doing, and so you're not wrong that this is kind of a weird bit of an add-on. And most, I think, moral luck scholars will now agree that what he calls the luck of antecedent circumstances is effectively covered in practice by circumstantial and constitutive luck, right? The luck of where you are and who you are sufficiently covers all that antecedent stuff that he's talking about here. And I think you're right. The reason he includes this is to talk about 
free will and determinism and make explicit that we live in a deterministic universe where every event is the result of preceding events and you do not have control over those preceding events in a reliable kind of way and so you can sort of draw the chain of causation back far enough where it's not even an open question about whether you have control right whether it's back to your childhood or even before then and so there was only ever the thing that you're going to do, I think is the right way to put this. There is no alternative thing. And the thing that you're going to do, everything about it is going to be the result of factors, in a sense, kind of beyond your control. Like that's just a fairly hard determinist reality that I think we have to acknowledge. Yeah, I think that's right. Let me just add one more thing in here, because I think at this point, some folks might be thinking, you're pulling a trick of some sort, right? You started off with a fairly basic, agreeable idea about control, and we've ended up in this weird place where nobody has any moral responsibility. And this is what Nagel says is like, that's just this philosophy, man. That's what we're doing here, where what you realize is your actual intuitions about morality are in tension with each other, are in conflict in this kind of way, that the control principle cannot be easily done away with, but it's also very difficult to imagine completely doing away with these ideas of moral judgment. What I ultimately do is jettison robust moral judgment in favor of much reduced ideas about moral judgment. I think Nagel hedges a little bit more and ends up believing that we can still think that there is something outside of the problem of luck and therefore some amount of tiny amount of space i think i don't know or at least what he says at the end of this paper is and i think this is a cop-out personally he says you're still going to think of yourself as having free will and therefore we're still going to have to go around acting like people have moral responsibility and i don't think that's the right way to go i think you can internalize a belief that you don't have free will and that no one else has free will and that that can change the way you treat other people for the better in your appearance on the skeptics in the pub podcast you kind of spoke about the issue of free will as basically forces that are acting upon forces that are acting upon forces and it's kind of turtles all the way down, right? There's so many forces acting upon other ones, both within and without you, Mm -hmm. that you can't really point to the specific decision-making mechanism, as it were, that makes you do the things that you do. Mm -hmm. But I guess my two-part question would be, isn't that kind of a big bang question in that Hmm. we can suss out that there was a big bang, right? That caused the expansion and quote-unquote creation of the universe, but we don't yet know what came before it right? What came before the Big Bang, but it started somewhere. Something started something. And two, relating to the Nazi example you used, to quote Nagel, he said, quote, someone who was an officer in a concentration camp might have led a quiet and harmless life if the Nazis had never come to power in Germany. And someone who led a quiet and harmless life in Argentina might have become an officer in a concentration camp if he had not left Germany for business reasons in 1930, end quote. And like, I totally get that, right? I think most people listening That makes perfect sense. There are events that happen that we don't even know the consequences of or events that happen to us that we can't even account for that lead us down roads that we otherwise never would have walked down had they not happened to us. But I guess my question there is, and I'd be curious to hear your answer on this because this is something I've been struggling with in preparation for this interview, is at some point, don't we have to be able to acknowledge a difference between Oscar Schindler and Heinrich Himmler? (laughs) Yes, I understand that perhaps there were events that would have led Himmler to only be Himmler and Schindler to only be Schindler. I guess in one way from a philosophical question, is there any way we can differentiate between those two? 
And two, from kind of a civilizational point of view, for society to function, don't we need to be able to reward and venerate people like Oscar Schindler and the Schindlers of history who saw a terrible thing happening and decided to do something good? I guess the question is, could they have chosen to do something good? Is that a choice they could have made? And how do we reward and reinforce positivity and positive actions in society? My worry is, is if the truth of it all, based on this moral luck concept, mm-hmm. is that people never really choose to do good. Mm-hmm. Good is only a result of actions that happen to a person rather than a conscious choice that someone made, right? Am I making sense? I feel like I'm barely making sense to myself, but that's kind of the moral quandary that I find myself in when kind of reading about this stuff. Yeah, and this is where I said, right, I'm confident that there is no free will and what comes after that statement gets really messy. And these are just several of the like really messy problems that I think naturally follow from the situation. And I think the right answer is not to turn back and pretend that we haven't recognized that free will is an illusion, but instead to press on and see what we can do to salvage these various problems. So let me see if I can work through some of your questions there a little <laughs> I bit. I threw a lot at you. So. No, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> we'll start here with the Big Bang question, right? Maybe a question of like, why should I care about cosmic determinism or something like that? Or rather, to put it another way, mm-hmm. you referenced the little guy who we imagine is inside of us. Mm-hmm. What I'm getting at is, isn't there, if you just peel back enough mm-hmm. little guys, there's a domino initially that goes down, right? Right. What's valuable, I think, here was the language that you were using about the inside of versus the outside, right? And this also highlights that the other major issue at play here besides moral responsibility is a robust sense of personal identity. The idea of a separate self, and especially in the like Hindu sense of a genuinely separate self. That's why I like to use the term Atman, like a genuinely separate self that is not the causal product of the causal nexus of forces out there, right? We want to assign some sort of responsibility to this internal self, but I don't think that we have any way to draw a consistent line for where that internal self is. And you can work backwards from easy cases to like harder cases. And I think it just becomes clear that the harder cases are not any better than the easier cases, right? So I did the one where it's like, I literally take over your body. We can move from there to the stories of guys who have tumors in their brains. And so they go on violent killing sprees, right? Are they morally responsible? Was the tumor internal to them because it was inside their body? Most people would say, no, that's not a situation of genuine moral responsibility, I think, right? But then we go from there to the person who engages in violent behavior because they experienced a bunch of psychological abuse as a child, right? Now, you could ask a question, well, is the locus of that cause internal to them because it's in their psychology? Or do we want to talk about how their psychology is the result of a mix of physical features of their brain that could have been shaped by the abuse that they experienced. And so in that way, they are not fundamentally very different from the person who just straight up grows a tumor on their amygdala Hmm. versus and so like, it just gets harder and harder. Then you move into what about somebody who wasn't severely abused, but grew up in a very strict kind of household where they were very limited in what kinds of things they could believe. And even if you get to someone who like, you know, let's imagine someone like me who had a lot of freedom of what I wanted to learn and study and do and things like that in my life. I still think that all of the things that attracted me were the result of, especially when I was young, forces beyond my control that 
My parents had a family friend who was really into ancient military stuff. So I learned a bunch about ancient military history and Greek mythology and all those kinds of things. And if that hadn't been there, that probably wouldn't be a large part of who I am in that kind of way. So what my moral beliefs are is either, right, in many cases, a modified copy of the way you're raised or alternatively, right, a direct rebellion against how you were raised. But it's never independent of those forces. And to look inside, I mean, to me, what I see inside is a bunch of forces pushing on each other, vying for power. And when one wins out, we ad hoc ascribe to that thing that's us, right? It won out, so it must be us, right? But what makes it more us than the thing that just barely didn't manage to win out? So that's where I feel like how I experience the way of looking at this. Now, do you need to follow up on that or should I go to Himmler and Schindler? Yeah. <laughs> it's a weird sentence to construct, but you can jump right into Himmler and Schindler. Right. Jump right into Himmler and Schindler. <laughs> <laughs> Try to say their names together three times fast. That's a tricky right? That's one. a tongue twister. Yeah, that's a dark tongue twister. Yeah. So in this situation, right, this is where the moral realism stuff that I mentioned earlier comes back into play, because I absolutely think there is a huge difference between these two individuals. One of them caused a bunch of suffering. One of them prevented a bunch of suffering. That is a very objective moral difference in my mind. But the difference between those two individuals is the result of luck. That's the hard part, right? I often like to since we're talking about the Holocaust, right? One of my favorite Holocaust stories, if I can use that sentence, is there's a guy kneeling and praying in one of the camps. And another guy comes up to him and says, what could you possibly have to pray about in a place like this? And he says, I'm thanking God for not making me like them. And I think that is ultimately accurate, right? That ultimately you are lucky that you are not Himmler. And Himmler is a deeply unlucky person for being Himmler. Now, does that mean that Himmler doesn't get punished? No, right? Now we get to the applied ethics side of things. So we can talk about the meta ethics side, or we can talk about the applied ethics implications, where I think you're right, we as societies need to have methods of influencing people's behavior. And this is where I think being really honest about moral luck actually makes us better at this, right? If your view is criminals just have a little evil person inside of them who's hell-bent on doing harm and that's why they keep being criminals, you're going to have a really crappy justice system, legal system, in my opinion, right? It's not going to deal with them in a way that will be likely to reduce recidivism, for example. But if you recognize that people who do these things are often doing them because of luck, like because of things that are driving them to do them, and they would not do them if they had a better situation, then like you can get a better grasp on what is causing the problem. Now, you're also going to need some sort of system for influencing behavior. But again, the luck thing helps us understand human psychology better. If we acknowledge that human beings are not radically free agents, they're agents who are influenced by their environment, then if you create an environment in which they are strongly incentivized to do the right thing, they will do the right thing more frequently. So it demystifies how we actually address immoral behavior in practice. What I think people actually really have a hard time with a lot of the time is this takes away a lot of the ability to be proud in a robust sense for your own achievements. It's very hard to let go of the egoic side of, I built this kind of mindset. And I think 
I don't have a perfect answer for them other than to say you can still really enjoy the good that you do in the world without thinking that it has to accrue to some sort of ledger that proves that you were the best or something like that. Well, let's kind of transition into how this could apply to something like criminal justice and all. Mm -hmm. I'll kind of slowly work our way in there, rather roundabout way. I want to relate it back first to my own experiences with cognitive behavioral therapy, Mm -hmm. which was very instrumental in me overcoming depression, a little bit of cognitive behavioral therapy. And by a little bit, I mean a couple of years and Lexapro, right? But Mm -hmm. cognitive behavioral therapy, I think in many ways, without knowing it, kind of gave me a window into that idea of both moral luck and free will, right? Or the little man inside your head, because I kind of learned and practiced this idea that I am not my thoughts, Mm -hmm. right? Because I would oftentimes be crippled with thoughts that did not feel like my own that I could not control. That would, all these negative ideas and thoughts about myself and about the people who loved me that I just knew weren't true. I mean, when I was in a headspace healthy enough to recognize that the thoughts weren't true, I could recognize that they weren't. When I was in a really bad place, they felt very, very true. And oftentimes I Mm -hmm. wouldn't even understand that they weren't true until several hours or even several days later. But cognitive behavioral therapy and the worksheets and the lessons that I did kind of helped me realize that I could confront those thoughts and dismiss them with training, right? This theory that a person is just a series of processes that are on autopilot and there is no individual there making conscious choices, which is what we're kind of talking about today. How does that square with something like CBT or any kind of self-improvement or betterment or education? Like, how does someone acquire knowledge if they themselves do not take the steps to open the book and absorb it? I could not have walked my way out in so many respects of depression Mm -hmm. had I not filled out that worksheet, had I not gone to therapy, had I not done all those different steps, or to put it in a blunter way, when I was at my absolute rock bottom period of depression around like early 2014, I would sometimes go entire days without getting out of bed, Hmm. right? And this is not some sob story. It's just the facts. If I were lucky, maybe I'd get up at like 4 p.m., But now, more often than not, because I'm able to, in some way, analyze my own thoughts, when those thoughts occur, I can kind of think my way out of it and get out of bed at 8 a.m. rather than 4. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so, I guess, as I think about my experience with CBT and with therapy in general, to kind of tie it back to the criminal justice example that you had, where, you know, you take someone and put them in prison or whatever, but through rehabilitation, you give them better options that they can choose, Mm right? Right you can have that person be educated to learn those better options. But at some point, that person now having had the upbringing that they had that kind of filled them with quote unquote bad options and the rehabilitation that fills them with good alternatives, Mm -hmm. they still are making that choice between A or B, right? Or no. On my view, the sentence, they are still making the choice. I reject the idea that there's this they that's making any (laughs) choice at all. Fair enough. Right. What I would say is, they, right, and it's hard not to have a noun at the beginning of your sentence, they're lucky, right? So you were lucky enough to be provided those materials at that time, just as you were sort of deeply unlucky to have this depression that you're struggling with, right? Neither thing is either your fault or something that you would get credit for or something like that. Just like I was very lucky to have a lot of teachers in my life who showed me a lot of different interesting worlds. And I probably would have spent a lot more time playing video games and not exploring all of those worlds as much if I hadn't had those people pushing me Mm -hmm. into those kinds of places. But I think, you know, my job and the job of educators, generally speaking, is to try to make as many instances, many chances for good luck 
in people's lives to have that confluence of events where a piece of information is available to them at the time when they can use it to benefit themselves in this kind of way. I wanted to bring something else in here as well about the consciousness stuff that you were talking about there, because this is something that I care a lot about. I'm very interested in mindfulness work. My dad's a clinical psychologist, so I've sort of been raised on this kind of stuff. And there is in Buddhism a practice called neti neti. And I'm sure I'm horribly butchering the pronunciation (laughs) of the Sanskrit there, right? But like, the idea is not this, not that. And it's a kind of meditative practice that you do, where you sit there, and you notice a thought come into your head. And you say, I notice that there is this hunger, but I recognize that I'm not this hunger. Clearly, I can't be this hunger, because the hunger can go away, but there's still this sense of me here. So I clearly can't be that thing. And you keep doing that over and over again. I recognize that I'm having this pain, but I am not this pain. And it's a kind of disassociating, counteracting what I think is a natural inclination that a lot of people have, which is to strongly identify themselves with their mental experiences, to say that I am my beliefs, I am my mental states in this kind of way. And that attachment when your mental states are particularly bad, can be really, really harmful, as you have, I imagine, experienced. And so I think, now, of course, there are criticisms to be had for CBT. It's not a cure-all. And I think it's great that you also are using medication. I think, you know, if nothing else, the moral luck view makes clear that if you can't generate your own serotonin, artificially generated versions are great. And there's nothing wrong with them. In some ways, I think the kind of naturalism fallacies can be a kind of, you weren't lucky enough to be born to do this thing naturally, so you have to suffer kind of fallacies. So yeah, I just think that a lot of this stuff just helps recognize, engender a sense of compassion, and a sense of humility, and a liberation from the harmful attachment to one's thoughts. Now, let me just say one more thing here, right? We don't become sort of narcissistic sociopaths or something like that, right? Some of the criticisms of yourself should not just be disattached from or something, right? It is valuable to say, hey, I screwed up this thing, I need to do better next time. Even if you recognize I screwed it up because of luck, how can I do better next time? I can eat before I go and do the thing. I can leave earlier so I'm not stressed to get there or something like recognizing those kinds of factors and not thinking of it as, oh, I'm going to beat myself up for having failed last time can be very productive and healthy. So we do want to, it's this kind of tension between non-attachment enough that we aren't sort of suffering because we are thinking that we are genuinely responsible, but also enough attachment that we recognize that we are causally effective and can change the outcomes of things for the better. Yeah. There's a part of me, and I'm not going to, but there's a part of me that would almost love to go down like an entire rabbit hole with how there seems to be a kind of modern phenomenon with people strongly identifying with, I don't know if illness is the right word, but like strongly Mm -hmm. identifying with their depression, strongly identifying with their anxieties, putting it in their Twitter profiles, so to speak, like as an identifying part of themselves. I much more personally side with your view that while it is understandable that someone would want to identify with that part of themselves, and I deeply relate to that because I kind of once was that, especially when I was like in my darkest moments, it felt like it was part of me, like another limb. Mm -hmm. But I worry that either encouraging or normalizing that kind of association with something that you can hopefully through training, although can you if you don't have free will, but you you can hopefully through training. Training still works. You're just lucky if it works is the difference. 
Ah, fair enough. But yeah, I mean, that's a different rabbit hole, but... Mm-hmm. Let me just add something else in here that I think is important because I don't... You know, I'm very sympathetic to a lot of Buddhist ideas about dissolution of identity and non-attachment, but I also am sympathetic to genuinely the value of identity politics and the value of constructing a healthy identity that I think a lot of people benefit from being able to express, especially parts of their identity that they might feel are culturally marginalized. So, for example, women putting in their bios that they've had abortions, right, where it is an attempt to, it's not an attempt to like wallow or something, which I think it can be read that way by some people, but it's an attempt, I think, to normalize this experience, destigmatize it, and also sort of reclaim what negative aspect there might be from that experience for that particular individual. Identity is such a tricky concept. If we could just get rid of it, that would be great, but I don't think we can. And so, what we need is a balance of healthy, flexible identity, I think. And then the one extra element that's also complicated here is, you know, this is a problem I have with the Stoics. If you focus all of your attention on when there's a problem between you and the world, right? If you just say, well, the world out there, I can't change, but I can CBD my head into not being as upset about the state of the world. Does that then undercut any attempt at real genuine change? I worry that it can sometimes. And that's why I I don't love the way that the Stoics will distinguish between the internal locus of control and the external world where you can't have control. And that's why I think that there is just no control full out, because as long as you maintain this idea that there is this individual world of control, you can end up making an argument where all responsibility falls to the individual to change that internal space, which can be controlled, rather than do what may be a harder task, but I think is an ethically necessary task of changing the world as well, right? Maybe the part of the reason that you're depressed is that you're living in late stage capitalism and you don't just need to CBT your way out of, you can do both, right? Out of depression, you need to also change the material situation in which you're living in. Yeah, I understand that. I mean, in regards to declaring someone's either past or declaring someone's struggles as an act of normalization, I'm completely sympathetic to that. I mean, one of the things that I promised myself I would do in early 2014, once I started going to therapy, was to normalize it in my own small way by bringing it up casually when I'd be catching up with a friend, right? Because I experienced my first depressive episode in 2009 around And uh, because of a sense of shame or a feeling that there was something wrong with me that I couldn't just organically think my way out of it, I felt like less of a person. I felt broken in some way because I wasn't strong enough to fix myself. And so five years later, when I finally started going to therapy, I told myself, okay, if I'm hanging out with someone and they ask me, hey, Michael, what do you do this week, right? I'll just throw it in there, right? Like, oh, I went to the movies, you know, I went to the grocery store, I went to therapy, blah, 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 right? I wouldn't make a big deal about it. I wouldn't trumpet it, but I would insert it as a way to normalize it, right? Mm -hmm. And what was so interesting about that was I would have friends who I'd known for 5, 10, 15 years, Mm -hmm. who I'd had incredibly intimate conversations with about all sorts of things. And the moment I slip in, you know, like, oh, I, you know, I went to therapy. Some of these people who I'd known for so long Mm -hmm. would say, oh, I go to therapy too. Yeah, I've been struggling with panic attacks for like seven years. Mm -hmm. And I'd never known that they had been going through that. And it was only until that I mentioned my own journey that they felt comfortable talking about it with me as well. So I completely relate to that. But I think where, and I realize we've gone a bit far afield here, but I don't really care because I find this interesting, is (laughs) that 
I do wonder how you, and this does tie into moral luck, I do wonder how you balance that with, let's say you're talking to me either on this podcast or somewhere else, right? Mm -hmm. And you come at me with an opinion or something. And I just say, you know, well, Aaron, as someone who struggles with depression, I really feel like the way that you're talking to me right now is disrespectful. Mm -hmm. As someone who, as you know, has anxiety, I really feel like this is an inappropriate topic for you to discuss with me. I wonder how we And it kind of does relate to moral luck, right? Because in some ways, you can kind of use that defense against all sorts of things. It's kind of a the devil made me do it sort of thing, right? I am not really responsible for myself or for how I act in the world if I'm merely something being acted upon rather than an actor, if that makes sense. Yeah, a couple of things there. So first of all, that moment, I think, is really interesting because when we usually talk about identity, I think, we often talk about it as this individual thing, right? We all have our own identity with inside of us. But I do think there is a lot of value in talking about the idea of shared identity and communal identity. And I think communal identity has gotten a bad rap in the modern world with some understandable reasons of like people using communal identity for a lot of harm. But I think at the end of the day, there really is no community without identity. And that the people who think that they are in communities that aren't built around an identity, I think are deluded enough that they're harming themselves because they're not actively recognizing the parts of their identity that are activated in those communities, where I think they can be more aware of those things and would benefit from doing so. But I just think there's just a basic value in the moment of shared understanding with someone else who says, yes, I too have had this experience. It has been part of me as well. And that you have that mirroring of identity in that kind of way. And I think that's a lot of what goes on in the kind of social justice circles that are viewed as fixating too much on negative experiences. I think what a lot of people are doing there is some of them for the first time being in an environment where they say, I had this experience and someone else believes them, right? Instead of being skeptical that that really was what happened or that they're just misunderstanding or they were being too sensitive or something like that. Now, can that go wrong? Absolutely, right? You can get into a bad feedback loop where everyone just validates everybody else's experiences all the time. And that's not healthy. We need to be able to acknowledge that sometimes people don't fully understand what's going on for them and their own experiences, and that people can be wrong about stuff, and we need to try to correct them. Now, the avoiding conversations by saying, well, I'm just depressed. Now, it might be the case. I remember a time once where I was working a gig and... I was exhausted and shitty and <laughs> I you know, was making jokes about how I just wanted to die. I just wanted to kill myself or something like that. And one of my friends afterwards was like, hey, I'd rather you didn't make those kind of jokes because I lost a loved one to suicide in this kind of way. I'm 100% sympathetic to that. And I have since tried to avoid making those particular kinds of jokes because I think there isn't a benefit in my mind to making them. And there's a potential cost to people around me who I don't immediately know might have that kind of cost. So, you know, I think it does pay to be at least somewhat sensitive if somebody says, you know, I'd rather not have this conversation with you about depression, that can be an okay kind of situation. There may also be situations where you're like, okay, but you need to get help from somebody like you are destructive, you are causing harm, you need to deal with this in some way, even if you don't want to talk to me. So the last part of all of this is there's a common not to say that you're doing this, but there's a common fallacy where people confuse an explanation with an excuse. 
right? When I say, look, you did this thing because you're in a manic kick and it's driving you to think that this behavior that is genuinely self-harming is actually really pleasurable and beneficial, right? I'm not excusing the harm that you do in that state. I'm explaining it and trying to figure out a solution to it. Now, you could say, look, cosmically speaking, yes, I've excused everybody, right? I don't think anybody deserves to suffer or deserves to be punished in that really robust kind of way. But I think the concern that people have with the explanation excuse distinction is that if it's an excuse, they think that means and then therefore they can't be punished or there can't be any consequences. And that's not my view at all. I think there is good reason to have all sorts of kinds of consequences. But we have to acknowledge that when I put someone in jail because they did something wrong, I'm doing a harm to, right? It would be better if they were not in jail. And truthfully, they are the result of these factors beyond their control. They are, in effect, a kind of innocent person in that way. And so punishing an innocent person is an immoral act. I think it is an immoral act that can be justified in certain situations. But I think we should also be doing everything we can to absolutely minimize the need for those kinds of consequences. Yeah, I agree with a lot of that. I mean, especially the whole first half, the importance of making the distinction between someone explaining simply their experience and someone using their experience as an excuse, right? I mean, it's really important to delineate between good and bad actors. I mean, because you can have anyone Mm -hmm. try and hide behind a kind of moral shield in order to be a jerk, so to speak. And I do think, not to get too far into the culture war weeds, but I do think that that is a fundamental error that a lot of folks on the quote-unquote right make, where, and I think it really is a result of kind of the toxicity and bluntness of our discourse, which is a lot of people will mistake merely sharing your experience in order to be better understood mm-hmm. or sharing your experience as a way to disabuse yourself of shame around that experience. People will take that and because maybe they've seen someone with a similar avatar or someone from a similar background use that in some bad way or some bullying way, mm-hmm. they'll mm-hmm. then write off every single instance of someone just trying to explain like, hey, the reason why what you said I felt was harmful, you know, and I'm not trying to be a little dictator here, but the reason why I think what you said was harmful is because of my personal experience around it, right? Like with your jokes about Mm -hmm. suicide, right? Mm -hmm. I totally get that. And I've even had to have conversations with some of my friends and it's always fraught, right? Around like topics Mm -hmm. of depression and them kind of like, especially when I was early in the stages of it around like 2014 and people would be like, hey, have you thought just about going for a walk? And I'm like, sometimes if I'd be like in a really bad headspace, I just had to kind of internalize it, not talk to him about it. But Mm -hmm. when I would work up the courage to talk to him about it, I'd be like, you can't understand why what you said affected me in a certain way, simply because you haven't lived through what I'm trying to work my way through. Right. But I just want to let you know, blah, 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 right? Please try not to say that stuff, at least around me, because we can sit down and have a beer and I can talk to you at greater length about why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling. But if you could just avoid that, that would be a huge help to me. And like nine out of 10 times, my friends, you know, because they're my friends would be like, oh, yeah, totally sorry about that. And then every once in a while, mm-hmm. I'd get pushback. And so, I mean, in many ways, funny enough, the moral luck of me having gone through what I went through, which was an incredibly mm-hmm. uh, difficult experience, like it affected a whole host of things. It affected my views on moral luck before I even knew what moral luck was, right? It affected mm-hmm. a, a lot mm-hmm. of the ways in which I viewed things like criminal justice. It affected a lot of the ways in which I viewed the way that people talk about their own trauma. It made me more sympathetic and empathetic than I was. And I already kind of leaned pretty far in that direction anyway. Mm -hmm. Because once you go through something like that and you realize that you went through it kind of through no fault of your own, 
it kind of cascades into a whole other subset of societal issues because you realize, wow, I think you said it earlier, there but for the grace of God, go I. And then I could all of a sudden see it play out in so many of my other friends and family. I could see why they made the decisions that they made or why they didn't make decisions that they didn't make. Not because they were necessarily free agents, so to speak, but because they were a product of their own parents and then their parents were a product of their grandparents and where they grew up and where they were from and the religion they had. And it's a lot to take in, Aaron. The one problem with this, I think, in general is, and you seem like a pretty introspective guy yourself, I'm wondering really, how do you guard against the recursion, Mm -hmm. right? Because for me, as someone with depressive tendencies, I have to guard against thinking about this too much Mm -hmm. because it can trigger a kind of depressive state where I think, what's the point in me doing anything if I can't really do anything at all? Okay, good. Yeah. So, we've hit the existential crisis, which is where this always <laughs> tends yeah. to go. And that's natural, right? There's a natural bottoming out because you have so much investment psychologically in this sense of identity, this sense of separate self. It would be weird if you didn't come to an existential crisis when taking these kinds of things seriously. I would suggest you are not taking the issue seriously if at some point you were like, well, what does it mean to do anything then, right? But I think there's another step on the other side of that, and it's not a hard step to make, right? So, like, let me ask you just a very basic example. Do you enjoy helping people? Yes. Yeah. No, it brings me a lot of joy, whether it's something small or something large. The idea that I have played a part, big or small, in helping someone make their own life better brings me a lot of reward. Did you choose to be a sort of person who enjoys helping people? You're asking tough questions, Aaron, because I, that's, <laughs> that's difficult because one, I understand the question you're asking that in some ways I did not choose to be that person, mm-hmm. but I also kind of believe that you can practice something to the point where you can learn a behavior where to a point where it becomes natural, mm-hmm. where if you do something enough times, and I'm totally open to you proving me wrong here, but I am open to the idea that you can do something enough times habitually that the habit becomes ingrained. I'm not going to disagree with you as a virtue theorist. I think that's (laughs) the only way to get better is to do things by habit. But I think the point here is, of course, you started getting in the habit long before. Try to think back. Was there a moment where you decided to be a good guy instead of a bad guy? Or was it that Mm. you always felt pleasure when you did those good things? And maybe that's because you were socially habituated to be a pro-social creature, right? Like many of us or something like that. But even setting aside those questions for a second, let's say that you want to resist the full brunt of my no free will (laughs) argument, right? You've already solved your own problem, I think, because the reason that you do the thing you do when you help people is not ultimately, in my opinion, I think, because you need to be praised and have your identity affirmed and that sort of thing. It's because you take the pleasure in doing it and you value the benefit that it produces for the other person. And those things don't go away just because it's a matter of luck, whether you succeed in helping the other person or whether you succeed in getting out of bed a particular day and helping people or something like that, right? So on the other side of this existential crisis, there is still all of the daily things of life that can give us pleasure. And that just because we didn't radically choose to take pleasure from them, or like just because we didn't 
radically choose which the people that we can help or something like that doesn't mean that we should have any like our reasons for helping them have not gone away they haven't changed a bit the converse of this is that when i teach this stuff in class i genuinely have no concern that the people in my class are going to turn around and become serial killers because they thought oh well i don't have any free will so i might as well start murdering people because they're the same person that they were when they learned about this problem and that person is someone who is deeply deeply habituated to not be a serial killer right so like the reasons that you're going to act the luck that is built into your constitution and all those sorts of things it doesn't flip off it doesn't go away because you've been made aware of it if anything it becomes potentially more effective and and again i use the word you here in heavy quotes but the illusion of you at that control console gets some greater ability i think to influence which forces are going about right so it's not a radical free will thing to say if you practice cbt you can nudge yourself towards the better psychological outcome instead of the worst one in a given situation right that's compatible i think entirely with my view and similarly leading a life of happy flourishing and stuff is i think fully compatible with this view and you know at the same time we have to be sympathetic to other people who are unlucky enough to not get to do those things yeah i hear you and i agree with that largely (laughs) the trick is is that you said something in there that I want to take off into a tangent about the issue of free speech because I feel like you made a very pro-free speech statement there. But maybe (laughs) maybe I'll put a pin in that for just a second because I do want to talk about the criminal justice element and also how that also uh, relates to educational outcomes, let's say, because I think they're kind of two sides of the same coin. So I wonder, in terms of the criminal justice element, and you know, I had Samuel Weiss on four or five episodes ago, he's the president and founder of Rights Behind Bars, which is a mm-hmm. legal nonprofit that advocates for the rights of the incarcerated on the podcast, because it's very important to me that even if I didn't know I was articulating the idea of moral luck at the time, it was a driving force for why I brought him on. Because I do feel that by and large, for the most part, people are kind of, to put it in a certain way, I suppose, victims of circumstance that are beyond their control, mm-hmm. that no one raised in a healthy, loving environment, unless there was something, you know, genetic that I guess predisposed them to be some some other factor beyond their control. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yet another factor beyond their control. That beyond that, beyond an, I guess an internal factor, that if external things were different, they would not have been who they became. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's a very important thing for me. And it's why I believe so strongly in prisoners' rights and the power of rehabilitation. But mm-hmm. I guess what I wonder is going back to the two drivers in the crosswalk, right? Mm -hmm. The one who drove through the crosswalk when there wasn't a child there and the one who drove through the crosswalk when there was. If they are both, I I suppose, moral equals and that they both committed the act of running through the crosswalk, which was something that I guess they did. And I I realized in having a conversation about the lack of free will that every time I say something like Mm -hmm. that, like an affirmative statement, (laughs) you're just going to have to grant it to me so I can form sentences. But sure, I understand. It's hard to talk. Exactly. Exactly. I'm like trying to weed my way through this. But But you notice how ingrained into the language it really is too. That's very true. So hard to get outside of that way of seeing things. Yeah. So but let's say right that if not for the circumstantial luck that Either both of them would have hit that child or both of them would not have. And it was only for the circumstantial luck that one of them did and one of them didn't. Mm -hmm. Is that an advocacy for even stricter preemptive fines? As in, (laughs) we fine drunk drivers, right? Mm -hmm. Not necessarily because the act of driving drunk in and of itself 
is the violent part of that act, but because we understand that when you drive drunk, you increase your chances of committing an act that leads to the death of someone else, the death of yourself, harm, all kinds of various traumas. And so we guard against that, so to speak, by issuing very harsh fines for anyone who drinks and drives. Mm -hmm. Should we apply that logic to many, many other areas of life because of our understanding of circumstantial luck that you know, should we give someone one year in jail for running across a crosswalk because we understand that the only thing that differentiates them from someone who ran a crosswalk and hit a kid is luck? Should we punish someone for running a crosswalk in a car with one, five, ten years of jail because we understand that if it weren't for a roll of the cosmic dice, they'd kill a kid? Yeah, okay, good. So there is an argument, a sort of Kantian style argument that undergirds kind of the idea that you're presenting there. And so I'm going to lay that out. And then I'll explain why I think it's not a good idea. Or why, why I think that the question is not actually about free will as the answer to your question. So, you know, in response to the problem of consequential luck, right, the luck of whether you hit the kid or didn't, right? Someone like Kant, who desperately, desperately wants to avoid the problem of luck and wants to maintain and secure moral judgment and moral responsibility, his solution is going to be we shift inward from moral judgments about consequences, like utilitarian style, to moral judgments about the maxims of the agent, the willing of the rational agent itself. So the judgments become entirely about what was your intention? Like, what was your will when you were doing that particular thing? And one thing that can mean is we solve some of these particular situations of consequential luck by increasing strict consequences for everyone, essentially a kind of leveling up of consequences, right? So in order to maintain our ethical consistency, we punish the guy who didn't hit the kid just as bad as the guy who did hit the kid, right? That could be one way to justify the kind of really strict drunk driving laws that you're talking about, right? The idea is we treat you as if you've already hit somebody. But that could be in a punitive kind of sense. And I think that's wrong and a mistake. And it's weird. It's intuitively very weird to us to imagine the guy who hits the kid and the guy who doesn't hit the kid are genuinely morally equivalent. I don't think we need to go in that direction. But I also don't think that the answer to this question is a meta-ethical one. I think it's an applied one, right? The question here is, does stricter drunk driving laws genuinely reduce the amount of suffering caused by people hitting each other with cars versus what are the trade-offs of that look like compared to having too many people who are drunk drivers in our criminal justice system. Those are the kinds of practical trade-offs that I think are at issue here. And the answer to the question is going to be an empirical one in my mind, that you're going to like do the studies and find out what works and what doesn't. And then the moral question, I think, is going to be, are we willing to accept some amount of what is going to be injustice in a sense of punishing people for things, even though they are not necessarily responsible for the sake of reducing suffering, broadly speaking. And I think we are justified in doing that. But we want to work as hard as possible to minimize the harm and to not see the people that we are dealing with as being bad people deserving of punishment. And I think this is something that Nagel struggles with, correct me if I'm wrong here, but mm -hmm. why aren't they morally equivalent under this framework? 
why if we had minority report style technology, right? Mm -hmm. As dystopian as that is, why isn't that the morally correct way to view things if one, we don't believe that we have free will and two, we believe that everything in life is a matter of luck that is happening to us rather than luck that we make. So Mm -hmm. if I could see into the future and I see, let's say it's you and me, right? I see you, I see me. You're going to drive a car. I'm going to drive a car. I see Mm -hmm. that I drive the car and run the crosswalk. I see that you drive the car and run the crosswalk. Even though I can see that I'm going to be the one who (laughs) causes the terror, I can see that both of us are going to run through the crosswalk. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I guess I'm just trying to figure out how the framework of moral luck doesn't make it crystal clear that both you and I in that scenario of the running the crosswalk are morally equivalent because it was simply the luck that the kid is in the scenario one time and not both, mm-hmm. right? Or am I missing something here? Because it feels like that framework yeah. necessitates punishing, quote unquote, punishing both equally. So I think it might help here to distinguish between what we might think of as the moral status of our actions versus our moral status as an actor. So this is like a move that Mill makes, for example, John Stuart Mill, that he says, all that matters is consequences when assessing the actual morality of the act that you did. Intentions of anything only matter when assessing your moral responsibility for doing those things, which could be different. Those things naturally come apart in various situations like the ones we've been discussing, right? Where we can very easily say, look, you caused a bunch of suffering, but you did it because you were having a seizure or something. And that mitigates our judgment of moral responsibility. It doesn't change that you caused a bunch of harm, though. So what I would say in the situation here with the the people in the crosswalk, right, they are equally morally responsible on this view in the sense that neither of them is morally responsible. But what they did has a different moral status because one of them killed a child and the other one didn't. The difference there, again, is luck, but it isn't the same as saying, well, there isn't actually a difference between them. It's like the Schindler-Himmler kind of situation where the consequences were still much different and very bad. But when we go to assess the morality of the individual, right, we have to recognize that they are both the result of these factors beyond our control. Again, you mentioned Minority Report there, right? The problem with Minority Report is not trying to stop the crimes ahead of time. It's the dystopian locking people up for their entire lives because they were going to commit a crime kind of stuff. It's the punitive feeling criminal justice system that goes along with this attempt at pre-crime, right? If you had a really advanced AI that could just prevent a bunch of suffering, maybe it would creep people out because of its impact on their illusion of free will. But I would have a hard time considering it immoral if it was doing it in ways that weren't coercive and violent and abusive. Right. So Minority Report, if I understand what you're saying correctly, would be fine within reason if instead of using the technology to have Tom Cruise bust through your door and arrest you forever, he knocked on your door and said, hey, We just learned that you're going to commit a murder in three days. Mm -hmm. And we just want to offer you the opportunity to not do that. Yeah. Social worker Tom Cruise (laughs) shows up to his clipboard and is like, (laughs) we have some resources. We would like to get you some help. Yes. That's a utopian future instead of a dystopian future is what I'm saying. Maybe not as exciting. Maybe not as many action scenes, but uh, a better future for all. This is why I'm strongly in favor of abolishing pre-crime, right? Defund the pre-crime. Defund the pre-police. Yes. I guess, though, where, and this kind of leads into education, Mm -hmm. because I guess where I'm struggling here is if we believe in moral luck and the idea that there are many things beyond our control, maybe everything is beyond our control that we didn't choose. Mm -hmm. When viewed through an educational lens that would 
potentially argue for something like an equal outcome, right? Because if I give another hypothetical scenario that involves a fictional Aaron, a fictional Michael, right? Let's say, and again, I don't know your background, so this is all made up, but let's say you were raised in a home where studying was not just suggested, but mandatory. You know, you were via strict Mm -hmm. upbringing, deprived of many extracurricular activities that I was able to enjoy, let's say. So while my weeknights and weekends were spent playing video games Mm -hmm. and socializing with friends, you were forced to study and pursue extracurriculars that focused on academics. So as a result, from a very young age, you were achieving academic success, let's say, through dint of how your parents basically raised you versus where I was simply not able to achieve that academic success because I was allowed to, let's say, play video games all weekend long or hang out with my friends. So Mm -hmm. for every one hour I studied and prepared, again, through no fault of my own, you studied and prepared for 10 hours. And so that had a cascading effect where you were admitted to Ivy League schools and I attended, let's say, San Diego State or Cal State Long Beach, you know, good colleges, not Mm -hmm. calling those out, Mm -hmm. but ones that would readily accept my 3.1 GPA. So would the concept of moral luck dictate that I should be allowed to enter Harvard with you as it was only through a roll of the cosmic dice, uh, to use that phrase again, that you were forced to study 20 hours a week, Mm -hmm. whereas I studied two hours, right? So that's my overarching question. And if moral luck might dictate that, yes, we should strive for an equality of outcome because if I were raised in your circumstances, I also would have studied 20 hours. How can we disconnect that from equality of punishment, regardless of outcome? Good. Yeah. So there's a lot of great stuff there. I like your cricket and ant scenario here. (laughs) So let me say a few things. You know, you can buy this view and agree that there's a major problem with our current system. And there can still be like multiple answers to the problem. So one answer could be everybody should get to go to Harvard, but that doesn't seem viable, right? Another answer would be we need to get rid of Harvard. (laughs) By what I mean more broadly, we need to get rid of this absurd obsession with private high fancy ivy league schools as being the true gatekeepers for merit and success essentially that what we have to acknowledge is the education that you got at your uc santa cruz or whatever is not orders of magnitude worse than what you would get at harvard it's probably in many ways a fairly similar kind of education but we think we need as a society these gatekeeper models that allow us to sort people into higher and lower stages of merit so we haven't talked about meritocracy much here but like all of my arguments i think are heavily echoed by folks like sandel when they talk about the myths of meritocracy and the tyranny of merit and such like that and they will argue that it's incredibly silly that we take young people who as you say are in all of these very different situations and like assess them in a meritocratic kind of way and then put them on tracks that will define what their options are for their lives in a substantial kind of way there's just a lot of problems with all of that so what do we do instead besides smash the oligarchy of supreme high-level colleges or something he argues in his book and i think this is an interesting thing to play with a kind of mixed luckocracy and that's a real concept it's the idea where some of these kinds of decisions are determined by luck they're determined by lottery so what he says is and he talked to people who do acceptance at places like harvard and what they'll say is look we have 
4,000 submissions for 300 positions or something like that. And the reality is once you weed out like 10% or something, everybody else would be fine there. Like all of those people would be good being there. So then it becomes this ridiculous race of how do you distinguish between all of these different kinds of people and then all sorts of really crappy factors get used and you end up with that giant scandal where people were buying fake backgrounds for their students so they could get into these kinds of colleges you get this ridiculous meritocratic arms race essentially so what sandel argues for is once you have like a baseline have it be a lottery And if you wanted, you could actually combine this with affirmative action to have a socially just lottery. So I don't know if you're super familiar with the affirmative action kinds of arguments, but one common criticism of what they call preferential affirmative action situations where we give the tie to a person of color or the more extreme version, we have quotas for trying to have marginalized communities in these schools more, right? What you could do would be, Sandel argues, You can have a lottery system where it's a weighted lottery and people from different backgrounds would have different amounts of weighting, but it wouldn't be sufficiently weighted that anybody could know which person had gotten in because of that weighting. So at the end of the day, you avoid the problem of people thinking, oh, well, because of affirmative action, that individual clearly got in because of factors beyond their merit or something like that right because everybody got in because of a factor beyond their merit which is the roll of the dice that was part of that lottery so you know i think we have to get creative about how we want to reform our system and part of that has to be we completely murder dead our ridiculous ideas about the morality of merit and our desire to attach respect for individuals based on their merit which ends up being their productivity in society or something like that yeah i mean i think those are all great ideas there have been schools that have borne this out maybe not too many colleges and universities but middle schools and high schools that are entirely lottery based. And yet kids from all different backgrounds tend to do quite well. Because the funny thing is, is that when you put most children in situations where they have access to a quality education, teachers that care about them, and good resources, a lot of them tend to really thrive. So I wouldn't be surprised if that bears itself out at the university level as well. And the other point that comes to mind when you're talking is, and I can't remember the journalist who's doing the work on this, but they released some stats last year. That showed that in terms of drivers of income mobility, Mm -hmm. the most bang for your buck, so to speak, to climb up the economic ladder, it was overwhelmingly middle tier colleges, not Mm -hmm. like the Harvards and Yales and whatnot, for two reasons. One, the Ivy Leagues, as you probably well know, tend to overwhelmingly, no matter what the person's background is in terms of race or creed or et cetera, favor the economically privileged. And so the income mobility that's inherent in those middle tier schools One is just going to have a much greater effect because the people who are going to those colleges tend to come from lower income backgrounds. And by lower income, I just mean- More room for mobility. Exactly. Less than six figures. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that all proves out your points, which I think are great. We can't overstate the debt problem, right? The crushing, crippling debt that people are going into that they can't discharge through bankruptcy is- a huge problem. And like, I'm very pro people going to college. I'm very pro people going to trade schools, very pro like all of these sorts of enrichment programs. And I am all for being critical at the same time of the ways that neoliberal capitalist models have turned higher education into something that extracts an inappropriate amount of wealth from students in exchange for sometimes subpar educations. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, there's so much data out there that shows that student debt has a cascading effect on all other sorts of things. I mean, not just the fact that millennials, I think, are the first generation and that are like way underperforming compared to Gen X or baby boomer generation, let's say. Mm -hmm. I think largely because everything just gets delayed. The debt that you have, which I think is on average somewhere between like fifty and $70,000 per student, and that might even be lowballing it, has a cascading effect on when they purchase their first home, when they feel financially stable enough to get married, and then of course, when they have kids. So everything gets shifted back five or six years. Yeah, it's terrible. I mean, I think if I was going to part ways a little bit, and I don't even know if I'm parting ways with you because I don't know your thoughts on this all that well, is that the kind of education as profit driver, I think is absolutely spot on. But I do think that that is part and parcel. It's related to federalizing student loans, in my view, in that the federalization of student loans and the government backing of student loans created basically a mechanism in which universities were kind of perversely incentivized in a roundabout way for sure to raise their rates because they realized that they could begin to charge anything because if anyone could afford any college so to speak through loans and then you know you have like 18 year olds basically filling out for loans that they really don't understand the consequences of down the line sure absolutely should not be allowed. and then you see these universities right you see these universities begin to build out spas and like workout centers and gigantic stadiums because why not mm-hmm. And all of a sudden that drives up the cost of college and then students have to take out even more loans. And it seems like this gigantic cascading system, which I know isn't entirely attached to the topic we're talking about. But this is all just to say that I agree with you in general that we really have to get these costs under control. I think this one size fits all approach to college is completely broken. We need to emphasize things like community college and trade schools and apprenticeships and all other sorts of things. And because I think that we have to show people that there are a host of avenues they can take in order to better themselves and provide for themselves and their potential children, et cetera, et cetera. And I think this, you know, speaking as a former English major, (laughs) there should be more options open to kids as they're trying to figure out what their educational future should be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I also think that we should be working towards a society where anybody who wants to go to college can go to college effectively for free. The benefits, you know, it's similar to every other level of education, right? The benefits of letting people just learn more are so broad for society that it's absurd. And again, you know, you you have to caveat that with things like you need to do bargaining between the government and these universities so that the tuition is a reasonable cost so that you know the government picking up the bill is not ultimately a huge problem. But I do think that there are absolutely models by which Every adult can have a choice between going to college or going to a trade school or something like that and getting that because we need it, right? The world is so complicated these days. You're not getting enough education in high school. I'm sorry. It doesn't prepare people, I think, enough to deal with the barrage of information that they are going to have to deal with in our world. So I do think we need that next level of education to be treated as, as much a right as we treat K through 12 education, essentially. That doesn't mean that everybody has to go to the same colleges or something like that. And there are like problems of how do you do this in a way that's equitable, where the person who freely goes to the community college benefits just as much as the person who freely goes to Harvard. And that goes back to the like smashing the gatekeeping kinds of models. And I think also I think involves if we're being fully utopian about all this massive redistributions of wealth that make it the case that the community colleges are not 
horribly underfunded or something like that either that they are providing this high quality of education and to say that community colleges don't already provide a high quality of education but that i know people who work at them and they're not paid enough and if those teachers were paid more they would have smaller course loads and could care more about individual students and the quality of the education goes up so i do think that there is a lot to be done that could improve these situations if we were really willing to revise how we view things like wealth and merit. Yeah, I agree. My yes and to your point would be, I think that we kind of need to rewrite what K through 12 is. I think that one of the reasons that kids learn as little as they do, to echo your point, is because K through 12 is an outdated system. Mm -hmm. It's like 40 or 50 years in the past that doesn't really reflect what modern life is like and needs more philosophy. (laughs) Yes, it needs more philosophy. It does. Critical thinking as early as you can get it in there. Yeah, I mean, I do agree with that. Yeah. And just as cheesy and stereotypical as it sounds, I mean, it needs to be more life skills. It needs to get a little bit out of the, and this is not a knock on philosophy, of course, but it needs to get a little bit more out of the abstract and more into, especially when someone's in high school with, okay, how are we going to set you up for success? So when you're 18 years old and you're getting out of high school, getting into college, let's say, isn't necessarily a necessity because we have hopefully prepared you over the last four years, especially to have a better understanding of who you are and what your options are. Let me get on that a little bit just for a second, because I think this is a major question in the world of like philosophy of education stuff is what is the goal of education? Is it to make you prepared to be a functioning citizen and get a job and be able to afford a house and such like that? Or is it personal enrichment? And are those different things? And do they come apart? Right? So someone else might, and I'm not saying I agree one way or the other, there's trade offs for every model, right? But someone else could say, what we really should be doing in K through 12 is constraining your perspective on what you could be as little as possible, right? Rather than helping you narrow down at that point in your life, maybe what we want to be doing is giving you as much sort of lateral room to drift as possible so that when you get to 20 or 25 and you start to actually figure out what you might actually be good at to some extent, you are able to incorporate that into something that you find valuable. I think it's very... My feeling is that a lot of folks don't have a good sense I certainly didn't in the high school period about what I wanted to be doing for the rest of my life. And if I had tried to lock into a vocation at that point, I would have burned out. I would have been miserable, I think. You know, if I hadn't gone to college and screwed around doing theater and then found out that philosophy was a thing and screwed around doing philosophy, then like I wouldn't be here. So I think there is a lot of value, especially in a world like where we live in, where Generally speaking, we have eliminated a lot of the necessity for people to immediately at the young age of 12, get out there and start working in the shops. We can give people that space to explore a little bit more. And as a result, hopefully, when they do find a thing that works for them, it really does work for them. And they're not sort of being socioeconomically pressured into it. The other important thing there is that we need to fix the ridiculous late stage capitalism that we're living in, where if I'm not immediately at the age of 15 or 16 thinking about what my career is going to be, I run the risk of not having health care. That shouldn't be the way that things work, it seems to me. Yeah, I'll yes and you again, because I'm getting ready for our improv troupe one day. But the yes and there would be, yeah, I don't disagree with anything that you just said. I would just say, I think that our goals are aligned in that I am a big proponent of, let's say, freshman year of high school. 
that we open up what a kid is able to explore. Mm -hmm. But within that framework of opening up the avenues they can explore, we take it from just the mere, and I'm kind of speaking to my past self here, I wish that I would have had this, where you take something, let's say it's theater or video production or an accounting class or something. I mean, it could be any number of a wealth of dozens of potential jobs or topics, let's say, that while a kid is learning about those things, that integrated into that lesson or lessons over the course of four years, they also learn how they can potentially translate the skills that they're learning into a career, right? Because the path to get from A to B or A to Z, so to speak, because oftentimes it's many steps, you don't really understand what that is unless someone tells you, right? I mean, one of the metaphors that I've used many times on this podcast is that if you took two people when you started them in Los Angeles, right, where I'm based, and in this fictional world that I've created, only one of those two people knows that the airplane exists. And the other person does not know that the airplane exists. You take those two people and you say, all right, the first person who makes it around the world and back to this point wins a million dollars. And you can have, and I think this is, I guess, falls right into moral luck again, mm -hmm. but you can have both those two people try as hard as they possibly can to get around the world as fast as they can. But the one person who doesn't know about the existence of the plane can try as hard as they possibly can, but they will never win mm -hmm. because they don't know the plane exists. And so for me, like that's kind of what drives my thinking on this topic, which is it's not just about exposing someone to a variety of different interests, which I think is absolutely vital, but also telling them or showing them how the steps they can take mm. to, and I don't mean to be too late stage capitalist here, but how they can take a passion or something they're interested in and eventually monetize it, whether that's to go into an organization or a business or to start their own business, right? Whether it's vlogging or podcasting or going to be a lawyer, whatever it might be, how they can take that passion that they're interested in and take it from the abstract, like, oh, I'm just doing this in class to like, hey, here's how you can learn to use it in the real world, if that makes sense. It does. And I'm sympathetic. Obviously, I want to live in the world where we don't have to monetize the things that bring us joy. But I also think that we live in a world where we have to deal with financial situations. And it would be better if the job that you were engaged in was an intersection of something that was the golden triad of, of valuable to society, feels good to you, right? Flourishing in that sort of way, and is something that you're actually good at. If you can get all three of those, that's really great. But it, yeah, it is hard. And then, of course, there's all the stuff about if you monetize your hobby or the thing that you love, you'll end up hating it. And that's unfortunate. So, but we can talk about what we want and we can talk about, and this is something that I talk about in my classes a lot as well, where it's like, I want to bring about radically transformed educational systems. In the process, the people who are living through those transitions are probably going to have a bad time, right? Not all of them, but there are going to be costs. And we see this, like we see this in the social justice stuff too. Like we are in the midst of massive cultural change and there are costs. And some people feel ground under in the gears of that rapid change. And there will be people who were expecting one set of goals or expectations, and then those goals and expectations shift, and that might feel unjust to them. So basically, how do we change the systems that people are living in while mitigating the suffering of the people currently living in those systems who have earnestly tried to figure out how to survive in those systems? Yeah, I mean, that's the classic problem of how do you transition someone whose entire family line all the way back to their great, great grandfather worked in coal mines? Mm -hmm. You know, how do you make the landing into working on a wind farm or a nuclear power plant 
little easier, right? Because through moral luck, they just chose the path that they chose. That was the one available to them. And it's not their fault necessarily, or not really at all. It's not their fault that they chose to pursue what they pursued. To kind of add something to the point you made, I think that, and why I think your podcast, podcasts, but I'll speak specifically of Embrace the Void here, is valuable is because I think these philosophical concepts like moral luck can be very value additive when we talk about things like privilege, let's say. Because when you can appreciate moral luck, you can have more holistic conversations around the concept of privilege. It's not just a literal black-white dichotomy of the privileged and the non-privileged. But when we can talk about all the various ways in which we have lucked into or lucked out of different situations, it's kind of like what you said, I think in episode 44 of Embrace the Void, the moral luck episode, Mm -hmm. you had someone who you were arguing with on the internet who you found out had a foot thing, Mm -hmm. which when I was originally listening to it, I thought was some kind of proclivity, (laughs) but it turns out they just had a disability that you called the foot thing. And then you said, basically, everyone has a foot thing, right? Everyone has some kind of pain or something that they're working through that we don't even necessarily can't even see, or if we can see, we don't understand the extent to which that foot thing is harming that person. And so, one of the reasons that I think that these conversations are so important, and not to be too hallmark, but one of the reasons I think that the work that you do, and why I want to talk with you about it, is because I think we do have to add, um, to (laughs) use the dreaded word, nuance to these conversations, is because I think that it makes us way more sympathetic to each other. And I hope that that's a place where we can get as a society to not only alleviate some of the pushback as our society undergoes these kind of seismic changes, right? That as we're changing, I think for the better for communities that haven't really been listened to or have been marginalized in many ways, while we're making life better for them, we can also acknowledge like, hey, the people who were benefiting from the way society was structured, mostly that was luck too, Mm -hmm. right? And so I think that too much gets lost in a blame game type scenario, which again, I emotionally understand. I get it. I get why people want to point blame. Totally get it. But I think that the moral luck framework can help alleviate some of that and acknowledge that we're all kind of in this together through luck, if that makes sense. Yeah. And before I read this stuff in Hegel, I think probably the first time I came across these ideas was actually in C.S. Lewis, where I think it's in Mere Christianity, but I'm not sure. That's a great book. Yeah. And I'm not even Christian anymore, but I liked it a lot. Right. But he talks about another version of this sort of there before the grace of God go I view is the, you know, we all have a foot thing is, you know, you see two people who manage to do a good thing or something like that. Do we know that they are morally equivalent? Not necessarily, right? Because one of them may have been working against a lot more muscle memory than the other one, right? Like one of them might have a long history of family abuse that made it much harder for them to do that basic good thing that someone else had a really easy time doing because they had been trained into it and habituated into it. And he uses this as an explanation for why judgment should be reserved for God. And I'm not Christian, but if I were, I'd be very sympathetic to that argument, it seems to me. Now, I think, and I would love to hear from your listeners, who I think probably are not necessarily always going to have the same philosophies as my listeners, whether they find the language around luck less bothering, less upsetting, or frustrating than talk of privilege. Like, I wonder, maybe it would be the case that if the woke picked up talk of luck the way they talk about privilege, it would gain that same negative connotation and people would become resentful of it. And I certainly do think that there is a part of conservatism is a resistance to these ideas about luck, which is, I think, related to things about honor culture and other stuff that's going, you know, 
I don't want to overanalyze why that political divide exists, but I think there is some good data from folks like Corey Clark, I think, who talks about divides between the left and right in terms of how we assess moral responsibility and free will in these kinds of ways. But I do generally think that more people can get on board with the idea of so much of all of this stuff is luck, so we should be a little bit more sympathetic to other people and the luck that they are or are not going through at a given point in time. There's one more thing I wanted to say towards my fellow woke friends. I think that y'all do a great job of being aware that luck is the reason that marginalized individuals are marginalized. I would love to see, and you know, there are a million think pieces about white MAGA supporters or something and what they really believe and why they end up the way they are. I'm not asking people to try to understand all of that kind of stuff, but at least to acknowledge that those people got there because of luck too. You don't have to agree with them. You don't have to be friends with them, but at least acknowledge that they are being pushed along by all the same forces that you're being pushed along by. And we're all just sort of being dragged along in this way. Yeah. I totally agree with all that. I mean, and again, not to market my own podcast on my podcast, but I think that it's instrumental that people not to foreshadow the final question of the episode, which we will get to shortly. But one of the reasons that I ask it, which is a question centered around the idea of empathy, is that ultimately, we all need that we all need more of it, you know, whether it's someone on the left empathizing with someone on the right, or vice versa. It's because of the very thing that you're talking about which is that you don't even have to necessarily agree with what someone's ideas are or where they're coming from. But if you can just go through, and I imagine as like a fellow theater kid, you can understand this on a deeper level, that if you can just for a moment, imagine what your life would be like if you were the other person rather than the life that you led, you know, Mm -hmm. it's in my opinion, and maybe it just feels easier for me, because again, I came from a theater background. But if you can just take that moment and just try and pretend to be that person, and all of the things that came with it that would have made you who you are, even if it's a bit of a fiction, right? Because you can never truly know. Mm -hmm. But it's a place where you can begin to understand, okay, if I were raised in that set of circumstances with that skin color or gender or whatever you want to call it, right? Whatever it might be, I feel like I could understand to a better extent why that person is acting the way that they're acting, why they believe what they believe, Mm -hmm. why they have the views that they have. And I feel like too often we just look at each other as if we're like aliens from other planets that, oh, I could never understand how they vote. I couldn't understand it at all. And maybe it's because I spend too much time on Twitter now, Mm -hmm. but there is such a lack of empathy on that website. And it encourages us. (laughs) It encourages us to be devoid of empathy. You know, like the hot takes and the retweets and the snark. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel it's productive. And so I'm glad. I mean, I'm not surprised because I'm familiar with your work, but I'm glad that you said what you said, because I think it's so important. It goes both ways, liberal or conservative, left or right, woke or anti-woke, whatever. I hate these labels, but it really is important, as cheesy as it sounds, to try and put yourself in someone else's shoes because it really does make it easier to understand why that person believes what they believe, even if you don't agree with it. Mm -hmm. I ultimately still like Twitter. I've had more positive than negative experiences with it. And again, I think it's another example of you can kind of be that luck that you want to see in the world in a sense. And you can create spaces within that hellscape in which people do, generally speaking, engage more or less productively, I think. You also want to try to argue, I think, for like revising the platforms in such a way that it encourages that kind of behavior that would be preferable. But I think you can also still have those kinds of experiences. And yeah, I mean, again, I always want to put the ideas in tension and say, 
we want to understand other people. We also have to acknowledge our limitations on empathy in the sense of like just the very functional limitation of it's very easy, I think, for a person to say, I believe X and another person is acting in a way where I'm going to infer that they must also believe that where it may not be that that's the case. It may be that they're doing something for very different reasons. And it can be easy for us to project a kind of narcissistic narrative onto others about why they are doing the things that we're doing. So we just, I think, want to be a little bit careful about that. One other thing that I think is a limitation, a challenge that we all deal with on this issue is that it's always just easier to understand the reasons and motives and luck of the people of your group. Right. We're all members of groups. I refuse to believe that anyone is actually existing independent of groups. And it is much easier to look at somebody in the other group and not see the luck that got them there, but see them as some person trying to do harm or something like that. Whereas it's very easy to see, look at, you know, someone else in your own group who's doing harm and say, yeah, but they're doing that because of all this kind of luck that put them where they are. So I think being more consistent about that sort of thing is very important again even if it means that you're not going to like suddenly start trying to hang out with people from the other group or something at least hopefully you de-escalate your animosity towards them because that kind of animosity can be a precursor for things like conspiratorial thinking yeah i agree with that i mean i don't want to get too sidetracked i do believe obviously people are always going to sort into groups I had this on my episode with Angel Eduardo, who obviously was also a guest on your show, mm-hmm. but I'm a firm believer in the more kinds of groups that we can encourage that are Jersey groups rather than immutable groups, I say is a better thing to encourage mm. groups in which you can put the Jersey on and take it off if you want to and put a different Jersey on groups that we can decide to opt into and opt out of. Obviously, we can't control for everything. They're always going to be immutable groups, so to speak. I would say the goal of futurism, as I understand it, is to make all groups mutable. Right. Like- yeah. Yeah, Make identity as flexible and mutable as possible is, I think, a valuable goal for reducing suffering. I totally agree with that. But a large part of that is also encouraging people to think differently, not just the act of like, okay, I can become anything, but also understanding Mm -hmm. that what I am or what I might be isn't necessarily as important as the things that I like, the things that I think, the views that I have, et cetera, right? The things that Mm -hmm. bind you and I, let's say, for instance, in commonality, are our shared interests rather than the fact that you're from one background and I'm from another. But that's a tangent for another day. So here's a question I have for you, Aaron, because I want to be respectful of your time and not go on forever. But I want to offer you the opportunity to, well, not make a free choice as it has already been Mm -hmm. destined, but I'm going to provide two options in terms of our final topic. And I wanted to offer you the opportunity to not choose. So... (laughs) I appreciate that. I will be compelled to pick one of them. (laughs) You're very welcome. So, because there were two topics that I'm kind of itching to discuss, but out of respect of time, I'll let you choose, quote unquote, one. The idea of moral luck and the idea of morality being true, which is something that you've spoken on in past podcasts and alluded to here as a motivator for imperialism, right? If morality is a real thing and a true thing, and only some people have discovered it and others haven't, Mm -hmm. can that be a motivator for bad things, for imperial conquest? Mm -hmm. And two, looping back to what you said earlier about how you're not worried that if someone hears you talking about serial killers, that they'll become serial killers because they've been habituated to not be, I would say, isn't that an argument to keep Alex Jones on the internet? So out of those two topics, which one would you like to discuss? Hmm. (laughs) I mean, I don't, think it leads to keeping auctions on the internet but i'm more enticed by the imperialism one i think probably because i I, 
do believe in moral realism. I believe that some moral claims are objectively true, which means they're true independent of anyone's beliefs about them. And I think that applies to societies and that some societies have a better grasp on moral truths than other ones do. The Nazis, for example, had famously a very poor grasp on the moral truth. And this is something that sometimes will put me a little bit at odds with my social justice compatriots because because they are rightly very anxious about especially religious-based moral realism that has been used to dominate and oppress for much of human history. There was a movement in, I would say it's centered in anthropology departments in particular, as a reaction to the kind of naive colonialist moralizing that happened during that period of expansion and control where they would show up and they'd say these native peoples have no morality we have to give them christian morality or something like Like, that's clearly very bad and so what happened was there was the rise of this kind of cultural relativism that originally i think the idea was if you're going to study another culture effectively you need to set aside your preconceptions about that culture it's no good to try to understand the culture while constantly being critical of them because of your moral lens or something like that. And I think what happened, unfortunately, is that expanded to be a kind of philosophy that said, you know, in order to avoid colonialism or imperialism, we're just not going to make judgments about other cultures at all. And I think that goes too far and can be quite harmful. But I do think there are situations where you should intercede and prevent other groups from doing things that are substantially harmful. Now, in practice, that gets very, very complicated, right? Like, how do you reduce female genital circumcision slash mutilation? There, there are debates about how to even name it. Like, how do you reduce that in these cultures, for example? Because I think it's objectively wrong. Do you forcibly prevent people from engaging in it? Do you try to incentivize them not to engage in it? How far are you willing to go? Is an open sort of practical question that I don't think you have to commit to one answer, even if you want to be a kind of moral realist. So in one sense, the imperialism is partly a problem if you make the jump from these people are doing something wrong to I'm going to use overbearing force to stop them. But think about the word Wandan genocide, for example. If there could have been more intervention that would have genuinely prevented it, I have a very hard time seeing why ethically that isn't the right thing to do. So, yeah, I think, so to answer your question, yeah, there is a high risk of imperialism when it comes to moral realism. But I also think it's the correct view. And I think there's also a risk of imperialism with cultural relativism. It just is the imperialism stays over there because you're not stopping them from being imperialist because that's what's okay for their particular culture. Yeah. When I was preparing for our talk, and I think you made a lot of good points there, but when I was preparing for our talk and I was listening to you talk about morality being real and free will being not, you know, we've talked Mm -hmm. at some length here about free will, but the idea of morality being real, something that exists independent of basically human progression, let's say. Beliefs about it is what we want to say. Sure, To be precise, right? The claim you shouldn't cause unnecessary suffering is true, even if everybody in the universe mistakenly believed that it was false. That's the idea. Right. And so, I mean, I just have so many thoughts on that because (laughs) I'm actually not sure how that view can exist without the presupposition of a God. Because if morality exists independent of human belief in it, right? Like if doing a certain action and, you know, Mm -hmm. I feel like the low hanging fruit is murder, 
But even then, mm-hmm. again, that could be motivation for Spanish conquistadors, right? Oh, they're doing human sacrifice. It's time for us to step in because God has given us the one true morality and we understand that sacrificing children to some God above at the top of this temple is bad, right? But that could lead to other things too. Mm-hmm. Oh, this country over here dresses their women super conservatively and women don't want to dress that way and don't want to cover their hair. So it's our moral duty for us to invade this other country in order for us to liberate these women from being oppressed by a society that we understand is morally wrong because the morality exists independent of whether or not that country believes it to be right. But I wonder though, going back to moral luck, right? If history is written by the victors, as the saying goes, don't you and I only agree on certain moral truths because we're living in quote unquote, the West, right? Western culture. You've referenced a lot of thinkers that are from very particular parts of the world. And maybe you would feel a different way you know, had you been raised with Confucianism or another moral philosophy? I was raised with Taoism, actually. So, <laughs> Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, there you go. But hopefully you get my larger point, which is... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I do. Do you only think these things and are sure of these things that you or that I have discovered a true morality mm-hmm. that then potentially gives us license or gives other people license to invade in the sovereign affairs of another nation? How does it not ultimately devolve to... China feeling the same way and deciding that they need to airdrop in troops on January 7th, 2021 in order to restore order in Washington, D.C. Okay, so there's a couple of questions there. I I get a little long winded when I talk about philosophy. You should ask Jay Shapiro. Uh, No, it's it's (laughs) totally fine. These are all reasonable concerns to have. So first of all, the question about God and objective morality, this is something that that is near and dear to my heart because I am an atheist and I strongly believe actually not just that moral realism is possible without God, but that a world controlled by the God that Judeo-Christian religions appear to believe in is a world in which moral realism is more in doubt rather than more secured, in my opinion. The short answer to the question is, if morality is really objective in the way I have in mind, then it is true independent of God's beliefs about it, too. This is the classic sort of euthyphro dilemma of, does God believe that something is moral because it is moral, or is it moral because God believes that it's moral? And I think if you take the latter view, you end up in a subjective arbitrary kind of place where God is effectively a kind of tyrant who asserts what is moral and then holds people to it. Whereas the more, I think, reasonable view would be God correctly assesses that torturing puppies is wrong and so conveys that knowledge to us. But he is not the source of that truth. He's just an observer of that truth. So you don't really need God to ground morality. Now, The real concern, I think the one that you raised there, that is a big problem. I wrote my master's thesis in response to the evolutionary version of this, but you gave the cultural version, is the like epistemic question of access, right? Maybe there are these moral truths, but how do we know that we have access to them? How do we know that we're not hopelessly misguided about these moral truths? And here, I think the answer is the same way that I think we can be somewhat confident that we are not completely misguided about are other kinds of knowledge and beliefs as well, that we use a mix of experience and reason and intuitions to assess the quality of our moral judgments. That I have spent a bunch of time thinking about the claim, all things being equal, one ought not to cause unnecessary suffering, right? Or all things being equal, one ought to promote autonomy. And that I have 
been able to find no counter arguments that undermine those and that they appear to correctly identify the problems with a bunch of behaviors, including maybe behaviors that I'm internally intuitively sympathetic to, but recognize as being problematic because of those features. And this is also somewhere where I think I know that he's not beloved amongst the woke, but Jonathan Haidt and folks like him who talk about moral foundations theory, I think are right that there are effectively foundational moral principles that are roughly speaking universal in the sense that they apply to everyone and most people recognize that they apply to them and that we can use those intuitive foundations and the trade-offs between them and the balancing between them to do a lot of good productive ethical reasoning and ethical work are we potentially still wrong about certain things most certainly most likely the same way that our scientific beliefs are probably a mix of good and bad and that a lot of them will end up being revised in the next 10 years or something like that but i do think that the important point is that we can make progress right that there was a time where the majority of people on this planet believed that slavery was acceptable and now the majority don't there are still a bunch of slaves on the planet and that's bad but moral understanding has made progress i think and even if aliens showed up tomorrow who had very different beliefs as long as we could communicate with them and as long as they had some conception of ethics i think we could have ethical debates with them that would be comprehensible to us right that their moral principles would likely be very similar to ours they might have ones that we wouldn't think of or something but we could understand those once they explained them and vice versa so i think that there is a kind of comprehensibility to these moral truths that allows us to take the sort of mixed bag of intuitions and preferences and feelings about fairness and justice that we have as a social species and bootstrap our way up to moral knowledge i agree with you <laughs> that's a good David Urban impression i <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, yeah, i know exactly what video you're referencing but i agree with you I i'll put agree. that link in the show notes so people know what the hell we're talking about but well I, I say it hesitantly because i feel like i recognize that because of moral luck i agree with you because i was also born here to put it another way, like, and I'm going to try and quote this person as directly as I possibly can. It's a person I was in a relationship for a long time, right? Chinese American. And, you know, there were a lot of cultural differences that were quote unquote foreign to me initially, but I eventually came to understand pretty easily simple things that I'm like, oh, okay, through exposure, I get this now. Mm-hmm. But there was one particular difference that took me a very long time to understand. And it was only when it was worded in a very specific way, like, in a very specific kind of analogy that it really clicked for me. And it made me realize how incredibly different the culture was in this distinct way from my own. And it came around the idea that basically this woman that I was with, she went to a particular school, college, because that's where her parents wanted her to go, went to law school Mm -hmm. because that's what her parents wanted her to do. And even as a grown adult, you know, in her late 20s, early 30s, still felt like when she wanted to leave the law and pursue the arts, still felt deeply uncomfortable pursuing that, even though She was grown, living in her own home, making good money. Like to my American mind, I was like, you've already done all the things that your parents wanted you to do. You've gone to all the colleges. You've done all the studying. You're free now, right? Like, why is this a struggle for you? Mm -hmm. And she tried explaining it all these different ways. In my mind, I was like, no, you have this one life, right? Like you have this one life. It was this very American, small L liberal, sovereign independence, which I actually think infuses a lot of your own 
beliefs in, in a way, uh, and mine too. I'm a born and raised American. Exactly, right? Yeah. And so I do feel like there's a conflict there, right? And the way that she finally analogized it in a way that clicked for me, and it kind of broke my brain a little bit because it was so kind of mm-hmm. sad, but also made so much sense at once was she said, a child who disobeys is like an arm that isn't doing what you want it to do. Like my mother, my father, in a way, view me as a disobeying limb. And so wouldn't you be upset with your leg or your arm if it wasn't doing what you wanted it to do? And that's how she worded it to me. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of both from my POV, heartbreaking, but I also realized, and this is the thrust of my point, it was a cultural viewpoint that was so different from my own that even once I understood it, I couldn't really appreciate it because it was so different. Mm -hmm. And so the reason I did that whole song and dance, Aaron, and walked you through that kind of lengthy story is when you talk about arriving at the conclusion of what is moral and what is immoral, you're starting from different ladders, right? Like the ladder that someone climbs culturally that gets them to the point of Mm -hmm. someone in a child disobeying is like a limb that isn't doing what you want it to do. is, in my view, such a different ladder from the ladder that a kid in America climbs when they're reacting and dealing with their own parents that I could never actually picture someone multiple generations in, let's say, right? Not a recently arrived child of an immigrant, Mm -hmm. but multiple generations in, I could never picture someone articulating it in that way. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And there are problems here. And let me add one thing. While I am a realist, I identify as a pluralist as well in the sense that I think there are, in many cases, multiple right answers. The important difference between a pluralist and a relativist is I also think there are objectively wrong answers. And so I think we could say, for example, so I personally don't like what you were just describing, but maybe I can say, well, look, If you come from that community, that society, and it does feel right to you, I don't think we necessarily should step in and force you to have a different life or something like that. But if we take your hypothetical and we imagine that her parents beat her when she didn't do the things (laughs) that she wanted. They did not. I want to make sure that's super clear. And I think this probably rings true for a lot of people. Psychological abuse. Anyways, my point is... You could have a culture that would say, it's okay for me to beat my child if they are disobedient, right? Because you could use the same limb example, right? If my arm doesn't do what I want it to and I want to hit my arm, no one has anything to say about it except me or something like that, right? Right, right? Like, I'll do whatever I want with that arm. I think that would be a very bad culture and would cause a great deal of suffering and harm, they might argue, well, we get loyal children out of it or something. I think empirically, you'd find that wasn't actually the (laughs) case, even if they had the mistaken belief that it produced more functional children. So partly there are empirical problems here. But even if it did turn out that it produced more stable members of society or something like that, it's still, I think, profoundly unethical to be abusing children in that kind of way. And so... Now, is that just my own parochial American beliefs? I don't think so. I can make arguments, I think, for why this thing is deeply immoral. I can make arguments for why it's one thing to say, what is the Jewish phrase? Or if I'm not for myself, who'll be for me? If I'm not for others, what am I? Mm. Right? And it's this kind of idea of like, yes, you have to be for yourself, but also for your community. And the balance of community and individual identity is a challenge that we all wrestle with, I think, over the course of our lives. And nobody has figured out the perfect balance. So what I hope is 
we would see convergence to some extent that these different approaches would come together over time because they would see the benefits of the other approaches and the weaknesses of the other approaches. And there would be that kind of social interbreeding that would lead to a more balanced kind of lifestyle. And this is actually also a stuff is that is very similar to like when we were talking earlier about curriculums, mm. like what is the right curriculum? Is it the one that gets you all of the math and science that you need to do particle physics? Or is it one that also includes art and things like that? Even if people perceive those things as not being as valuable, right? It seems like they are still very important for being a well-rounded individual who experiences a life of flourishing. I'll just wrap up with a recommendation of a book that I love deeply called 36 Arguments for the Existence of God. And this is a book about, it's about a lot of things, but it's about belief in God and obligation to others. And one of the main characters is the child of a rabbi, and he's also a mathematical genius. And all he loves is math and numbers and such, right? But his obligation is to take over the role of rabbi for his community. And that is what is expected of him. And he wrestles with the choice between sticking in a community that is very orthodox, that is not pro the kinds of study that he's interested in, in that kind of way, and going off and exploring it. I don't want to give away what he ultimately decides, but it's a really heart-wrenching decision. And I weep when I read his wrestling with that problem, because I think we're all wrestling with stuff like that in our lives. And Ethics, I think people have the illusion that ethics is the sort of thing where you will get to a right answer beforehand and you will know it and you will act based on it. Sometimes it is that way. And when it happens, it's a blessing. But I think my favorite version of the trolley meme that I think everyone hopefully is familiar with these days is the one where it's like this guy comes back to the site of the trolley 40 years later and he's like old and he's lived a long life and he doesn't know if what he did was the right thing or not but he hopes that it's the right thing and I feel like for a lot of us that's the best we're gonna do we're gonna try hard we're gonna think we're doing the right thing hopefully we're gonna doubt it a lot of the time and we're never gonna know for sure Yeah, I agree. And that aligns with my perspective, at least right now, of what morality is, which is I kind of compare it to a technology, something that we as humans create as we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us, right? And so, when we look at a computer the size of a living room in 1960, Mm -hmm. we don't necessarily judge those people because they didn't have iPhones, because we realize, we recognize that for the iPhones that we hold in our hands today to exist, first must have come the room-sized computer. And that as technology became better and better, people using the previous technology to build on that and to make smaller and smaller and faster and faster computers, you eventually get to the iPhone. And I know that this view kind of butts up against your belief in an independent morality that exists independent of all of us. I, at least right now, and my mind can always be changed, but my view is that Morality is a technology that we build upon by learning from those who came before us and improving it. In relation to that trolley problem meme that you're talking about, where a person can look back on the decision they made 40 years ago, but all the knowledge they've acquired in that 40 years maybe would allow them to make a more enlightened or better decision were they able to make it again, but only because they had those four decades of time to learn more. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this has implications for things like, do we judge people who engaged in slavery back when slavery was considered morally acceptable? And I think the answer is, 
we should still see those actions as being immoral. It wasn't like slavery became immoral at some point in human history. It was always immoral. It was just accepted at various points. And, and it's also worth noting that for the whole course of human history, there have been abolitionists. There have been people who thought that slavery was immoral. So it wasn't like literally nobody had that idea until the 1700s or something. But this goes back to, again, sort of moral action versus responsibility or judgment of the person. I think we can mitigate our judgments of the people of the past by saying they were dealing with their particular situation and, and we have the advantage of building on their mistakes and those sorts of things. And so we should be sort of humble in that kind of way. But I, I don't think we have to be humble to the point where we can't say some of those behaviors were objectively immoral and it's better that they don't exist anymore. Yeah. I mean, I think the best way to view it is to circle back to something you were saying earlier, which is I think it's healthy to view it in the same way that we would view someone who was a German citizen in 1936 versus a German citizen who left for Argentina in 1930 for a business mm -hmm. opportunity and simply wasn't there, there but for the grace. I mean, we, I keep saying it's, it's almost a meme at this point. But yeah, that mm -hmm. kind of understanding of moral luck, I think, makes reflecting on history a little bit more nuanced. But I want to be respectful to your time. And I want to pose the question to you that I pose to every guest at the end of the show. And I think it is especially related to kind of the topic we've been talking about today, as I think moral luck does increase one's ability to empathize with others. As individuals, we're limited in our time, our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy. Even the most well-intentioned and caring person can't be thinking of every other person, every other group of people, all the time. It's just mm -hmm. impossible. So, Aaron, mm -hmm. is there someone or a group of people in your life or in the world at large right now that you would like to take a moment? And offer empathy to. You know, I've been doing a lot of trying to continue to maintain and cultivate empathy towards what I would consider the kind of rank and file anti-woke. I think that there is a lot of taking advantage of people's genuine anxieties and bad experiences by the leadership of that particular movement. And I actually, you know, I'm for cultivating empathy for everyone. So I have empathy even for someone like James Lindsay. I imagine it must be awful being inside of his head. But I really want to like help try to encourage people in my world to like have empathy for the individuals who get sucked into those ways of seeing the world and have them understand that I think a lot of them are coming from a genuine place of they did really have a bad experience or someone did a wokeness towards them in a way that was really bad. Like there's a lot of lazy woke takes that go on out there in the world when it's really unfortunate. And I'm not surprised that it turns people off. So I want to have sympathy for all of the people who are wrestling with conspiracy theories, broadly speaking. I think the past year of everybody being trapped inside has likely wrought a lot of harm in terms of making people more susceptible to a variety of conspiracy theories. And as we work to try to untangle that impact, I think we have to really, really remember those people got there from suffering and bad luck, and we want to help them to find better luck and reduce their suffering. Very well said. And I think that that puts a point on exactly the reason why I wanted to talk with you today. I think that not only was it enlightening for me as I was researching the very topic we were going to be discussing, to learn more about this issue, to understand something that even if I kind of sort of understood what it was, I didn't have a name for it. 
And being able to dig deeper into it as I was prepping for this talk was really helpful. Mm -hmm. And I think that these ideas that we're talking about today and that you talk about on your podcasts are really instrumental to loop back to something you said at the very start. People are becoming more interested in philosophy largely because they're having big conversations about big issues online and ways in which we can have those conversations in a healthier manner, in a more informed manner by learning about philosophy, I think is crucial. So I just want to thank you for your time today. I want to thank you for the work that you're doing with both of your podcasts. I really enjoyed this, Aaron, and, and thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you as well. It's been a really fun chat, and I could go forever with stuff like this because I really do enjoy it. That's my luck of being someone who like enjoys these kinds of things. You know, I hope that I have done my best in helping people understand where people like me are coming from a little bit more as well. Part of my desire to come on your show is that I do think we have some separation in terms of people who are listening, and I really am all about building these kinds of bridges. And about the moral luck stuff, if you're not really willing to fully buy it, that it's luck all the way down, it's okay to start at smaller steps and just start to acknowledge the prevalence of luck in more places in the world and in your life and stuff like that. And I think little by little habit can build up in that kind of way. So thank you so much for letting me take the time to climb up on my favorite hobby horses. Well, you're very welcome. I am lucky to have had this conversation with you. <laughs> <laughs> See what you did there.